You're listening to Chris Farrell's On Watch podcast from Judicial Watch. I'm Chris Farrell, and this is On Watch. Welcome, everyone, to On Watch, the Judicial Watch podcast where we take a deep dive on topics that are underreported by the mainstream news media and demand a further look, greater background, context, and discussion. We are very glad that you're with us. In just a few seconds, I'll be joined by a fascinating guest, Dr. Shea Bradley Farrell. But first, I'd like to remind you that Judicial Watch's mission is to promote transparency, integrity, and accountability in government, politics, and the law. If that appeals to you, you're in the right place. So follow and rate this podcast on Watch, whether you found us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of the other platforms out there. And be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating. It helps us out. Today, we're going to talk to a lady who possesses extraordinary insight and experience in the realm of foreign policy and national security. Dr. Shea Bradley Farrell is a foreign policy and national security consultant in Washington, D.C., and the president of Counterpoint Institute for Policy Research and Education. Recently, she was a a professor and subject matter expert for the Defense Security Cooperation University of the U.S. Department of Defense. She is a policy fellow at George Mason University Shar School of Policy and Government and a member of the Texas Public Policy Foundation's Border Security Coalition. Her career has focused on international development, national security, foreign policy and aid, women's empowerment and human rights. Dr. Shea, welcome to On Watch. Hi, Chris. I am very excited to be here on your podcast. It's great that you're taking the time to join us. We appreciate it. Uh, So you're a policy analyst and a strategist, and you've worked closely with senior officials and cabinet secretaries, folks on the Hill, uh, mostly during the last administration, the Trump administration. Give me an idea of some of the stuff that you did for those leaders, both in the executive and legislative branches. Well, it was uh, it was a fascinating time, actually, during the Trump administration. I was able to work with Secretary Pompeo on his staff advancing real human rights all over the world. Um, I worked with Ivanka Trump and her staff on a women's global development initiative where we were aiding women in economic development all uh, all around the world uh, through her initiative. Uh, Many stories there. Uh, Also working with members of Congress to get language into text that doesn't go against conservative values. Uh, and that's that's a long story. <laughs> I've heard you described as, uh, I think I witnessed you being described as the go-to person for strategy papers, legislative analysis, white papers, academic articles, but you also write op-eds. You've done a lot of interesting opinion, opinion pieces. Give us an idea where are folks who, if they want to read the stuff you've written, if they're interested in learning more, Where are some places where you've been published? Um, Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that. A lot of great pieces. And I love writing. I love explaining to people how to articulate their conservative values. Because a lot of times people know what they believe in their heart, but they don't know how to explain it to other people. So that's what I try to do in my op-eds. And uh, I've got, uh, I've been published in the National Review, the Federalist, the Washington Examiner, Washington Times, uh, the Daily Signal, which is the Heritage Foundation uh, media outlet, The Hill, I, I don't know, many more, but there's one a couple of weeks ago, my latest was published in the European Conservative, And I'm very excited about that because it's based on my remarks uh, at CPAC Hungary just a few weeks ago. And it's called the EU and US imagine no borders except for Ukraine. And the reason, let me just tell you quickly that I I named it that is because the European uh, commissioner um, in 2016 said that the worst invention ever made by politicians was borders, was, which is also reflected in our administration right now. You see pretty much the abolishment of borders on our southern border, but it points out the hypocrisy of the ruling elites in the EU and in the U.S. on um, the way we are fighting for Ukrainian sovereignty right now, but we've forgotten sovereignty of our own country. We're going to delve into the details of that article uh at length in just a few minutes. Um, 
But I also want to touch on the fact that you've made presentations and presented papers and spoken at a whole bunch of different uh, organizations, whether it's the Wilson Center, the State Department, Heritage Foundation, uh, Gulf Studies Symposium. You've, you're widely uh, traveled and heard at these various uh, panels and conferences and discussions. Uh, but you've also traveled a lot. I know we're going to talk about your recent travel, but you've spent a lot of time in the Middle East and Africa and Latin America as well, doing a lot of international development work, training assistance, capacity building, those sorts of things. So uh, for you, this is not merely an academic exercise. You're not sitting behind a keyboard thinking great thoughts. You've been out there on the ground doing what you've actually studied. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, when I got my graduate degrees, uh, <clears throat> I, I did teach as a professor uh, at Tulane University. And I think that that's a very noble calling for people who are professors. But in my heart, I always wanted to make sure I was also putting my hand in and actually doing so that I had a different complexity of experience to what I was teaching. So your, your master's degree and your PhD are both from Tulane University. True. Great. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. There's a percentage of the American public who glaze over the minute you mention international affairs. They think, what the hell does it have to do with me? I'm busy doing my job and paying my mortgage and getting my kids to school. Why should I give a damn about foreign countries, foreign uh, international relations, you know, wars in Ukraine? What does that have to do with, you know, the school crisis in Ohio? Just take a second and try to explain to our listeners why it really does matter what the heck is going on in places like whether it's Ukraine or down in Mexico. What does it mean to Americans? Yeah, that is a great question. And there are two answers that I generally give that are critically important to Americans. The first one is that you are funding overseas uh, many, many things that you most likely would disagree with, uh, especially as conservative voters. Um, very quick example of that is the Obama administration, uh, and I see that the Biden administration is doing it as well, is funding ideology projects, that social ideology projects, um, such as projects and I quote, pretty much quote, um, that are to increase the acceptiveness of transgender ideology in foreign countries. That's just one small example. Your, your taxpayer dollars also go to fund access to abortion. That's an, I mean, we could have a whole podcast on that, Chris. Um, but this, so you are paying for things often that you don't agree with, but sometimes you do agree. So you need to know what's going on at the UN, at uh, the World Health Organization. Um, second, and, and this is what people don't get. I was speaking to a friend recently who in the conservative uh, movement, who knows so much about what's going on in this country, but did not understand this. And I, I maybe failed to get this point across. What is happening in the United Nations right now? What is happening in the EU? What is happening in these other international organizations, whether we as Americans like it or not, is often driving the social ideology and the political ideology in our country, um, particularly social ideology, and I would say even economic ideology, where we're looking more and more like a, uh, a socialist type country or veering towards that. Um, again, we could have a whole show on that, but I cannot um, reiterate this enough that the things that you're seeing, for example, the transgender movement into your children's school, a lot of this is being driven by international bodies that infiltrates into our government, our um, way of life, our society. I think folks got a scare over the World Health Organization and their various efforts to determine what is a pandemic and what isn't and what's a national or an international health crisis. Yeah. People were awakened or made aware of that a few weeks back. And there were some scary moves that I think have been at least blunted for a short time. But just to kind of set the stage and, and give us a vantage point to get your views, you are just back from Europe. You were uh, in Budapest, Hungary, and uh, participated in the two big events, 
Uh, one was CPAC Hungary, so the Conservative Political Action Conference in Hungary. Uh, first time CPAC's gone into Europe. Uh, and then a second event hosted by Heritage uh, Foundation and IRI, which is the International Republican Institute. So those two events, the, the view from Europe, the colleagues, the folks you talk to, mostly conservatives, but not all, mostly conservatives from all over predominantly Europe. Uh, we, from that vantage point, please give us, I want to open up with what's your perspective on how our allies are viewing two things and they're related. One, the Biden administration. What's the view of the Biden administration? And secondly, the war in Ukraine. What, what, how do you, when you come back, what, what is, what's the flavor? What's the, the idea that is, is impressed upon you from that European trip and those two events? Oh, well, the Biden administration, starting with that, you know, people who don't want to offend you don't say anything about the Biden administration. Other words, Otherwise, uh, in many instances, I think that they feel abandoned uh, by the Biden administration's foreign policy. I think that they are um, incredulous at the fact that we pulled out of Afghanistan the way that we did, signaling to them how we treat our allies. Um, uh, so there's embarrassment. People that uh, want to show you honor or respect as an American don't want to bring up the government. That's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, I don't think uh, also another impression I had is that just specifically that our government is very weak. We're not uh, showing on the world stage as we have done historically. It's a major contrast from the last administration who was very bold and countries knew that we would act if we were provoked to act. Um, I think that the feeling now is that we're not a major player and that we are waning in on our way out, which is quite frightening to me, actually. So I, my takeaway is that the, the Europeans view Biden as being befuddled, that he is that he is in over his head, that he, his mental acuity, let's say, is not what it should be. And he's essentially being run by a lot of staffers. Yep. Uh, what? How do the Hungarians feel about uh, the Biden administration and America's relationship with Hungary? <laughs> right now, you mean? Yeah, right now. <laughs> well, let's see. The Biden administration did not invite Hungary to their, demo, their um, democracy summit that they had this past December. Um, they're a NATO ally. Uh, a country that is built on uh, democratic principles, and they were not invited to the summit. So that's a slap in their face, number one. And they share a border with Ukraine, right? They share a border with Ukraine. And some of your listeners may remember this. In the State of the Union address, uh, President Biden said that if Russia continued to move west, that the U.S. would stand in uh, with, I think it was severe, more of his severe consequences uh, for Russia um, if they encroached upon our allies. And then he listed our allies. Um, and strangely, Hungary was not listed in, in that list. Uh, Hungary is a NATO ally. Hungary actually shares a border with Ukraine. Uh, Hungary is a republic with a parliamentary system that just re-elected a conservative leader for the fifth time in a, in a historical election, actually. And that leader is Viktor Orban, who's the prime minister of uh, Hungary. Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> uh, I guess infamously, uh, President Biden called Viktor Orban an authoritarian thug. Mm -hmm. Is that your impression? Of course it isn't. No, he's not. He's uh, a leader, as I said, that has been le elected by the people. He's actually a very wise and interesting man. I had the pleasure of sitting down with him with a few other uh, American leaders uh, that came over for CPAC for a two-hour conversation with him over coffee. He's a very interesting and wise man. 
Um, let me let me point this out for people who don't understand it. The reason that our administration currently is uh, marginalizing hungry and treating them like some terrible child at the kiddies table is because Hungary is a Christian country, a conservative country who wants to preserve its national sovereignty. Uh, there was a time in Hungary's uh, existence, uh, I believe it was, was it 1990, where uh, uh, they gained independence, so to speak. Right, they threw Soviet off Union. the Warsaw Pact. Yeah, yep. so they, they've been under communism, is what I'm saying, and they know what being ruled by an authoritarian is like. That's not what they have now. They're actually a country that reminds me of the United States back in the 80s, where you could still speak freely about what you believed without being canceled. You could, uh, you could be a Christian openly without being canceled or marginalized in some way. Um, so this is why the administration does not like Hungary, and the United, excuse me, the European Union, uh, Hungary is part of the European Union as well. And the European Union, much in the same way the Biden administration is doing to us right now in the United States, the European Union tells Hungary what it has to do. Um, and Hungary says, you know, we want to be part of the EU, but hey, we still have national sovereignty. We um, want to preserve our borders. We want to preserve our traditions, our history, our religious history, um, and still have freedom in our country for people who disagree with all that to come in and live and be citizens as well, if they wish. Um, but that is so... I, last thing I want to point out, there's been a lot of negative press in our press about Hungary. Um, and maybe before I came to D.C., I would have thought, oh, wow, this is true. Well, they're talking about Hungary the exact same way they've talked about in the media, Trump supporters con and conservatives um, and Christians, for that matter, and people that really believe in uh, America, in freedom, and it's it's a very similar situation. So what's the mood on the street in Budapest? Is it one of uh, jackbooted thugs knocking on doors at two in the morning and dragging people out of their uh, homes? Uh, is there some kind of thought police or big brother environment or mentality, or is it something else? Oh, man, that, you know what, that was what I enjoyed most about being on the panels there and talking to people in the cafes and getting into conversations with other academics in Hungary and from actually other places in Europe. We actually disagreed with each other on certain issues, but it was like 20 years ago when you could disagree with somebody uh, on important issues and they might listen to you. <laughs> they might get a little mad, but they would actually listen to you and you did not feel uh, like you were under threat of being humiliated or rejected or whatever it is for having your own opinion about things. So that was probably the thing I enjoyed the most. I had the freedom to actually be the academic I was trained to be and not pretend like I was, uh, you know, having to kowtow to other people's beliefs. Um, and just on the street, oh my gosh, you know, walking around cafes and markets and lovely people everywhere, families enjoying the day, the, the Danube River, the parliament there. It's like I said, it's a family oriented place and it's reminds me of growing up in the United States. So, uh, Ukraine shares a, a border with Hungary. Uh, Hungary is a NATO ally, NATO member of NATO and a member of the European Union. Um, what were the Hungarians, what were their impressions of how the Biden administration, uh, you know, sort of walked up to the Russian in, invasion of Ukraine? Did they think that, that President Biden was particularly effective with regard to uh, threats of severe sanctions or uh, you know, threats about shutting down oil and gas and energy supplies to Europe. What, what's your take on all of that? Uh, my take is that they thought that his handling of the situation really was of no good. It was inept handling. Uh, it didn't deter Russia in any way. Um, what was interesting, too, about being there is 
my thought way back in January, maybe before January, was that, you know, Biden waving around the severe sanctions really wasn't going to have any kind of effect on Russia. And the reason was that for that is that Russia supplies 40% natural gas to Europe, 25% of its oil. Um, it has these strategic alliances with China that it continued to use to circumvent sanctions once those sanctions were in place. Uh, reliance, you know, with the BRICS countries, which is an economic alliance. And I didn't see Russia really being threatened or worried about Biden sanctions, especially since we were also buying. <laughs> we had upped our uh, purchase of Russian oil since Biden got into office. Um, and, and just parenthetically, isn't it true that to this day, the Ukrainian gas and oil state-owned giant is actively cooperating with and helping Russia move gas and oil into yeah. Europe? So it's cooperating with Gazprom. Uh, to my knowledge, none of that carrying Gazprom oil through Ukraine into the EU has stopped because Ukraine is relying on it and Russia is relying on it. So, so wrap as, your head around that. Yeah, so as we're, we're everyone's uh, supposedly, you know, falling on their sword over, you know, Ukrainian independence and fighting off uh, a Russian invasion, the Ukrainian state-owned energy company, Oil & Gas, mm -hmm. continues to this day, uninterrupted, active cooperation with the Russians. Yes. Wrap your mind around And when, we're not supposed to see any sort of contradiction in that. The Russians are killing Ukrainians. They've invaded their land and they are still continuing without a skip in their beat to uh, do business with the Russian uh, giant Gazprom. It's uh, it's astounding. I want to, while we're talking about insane things and uh, the idea of cooperating with people that may not have best interests at heart, um, I, I have two things and I, I got to split them out here because one is more infuriating than the next, really. I want to spend a little time talking about your article in the European Conservative that has to do with borders and what borders mean and what borders are and why we should worry about them or care about them. And, and in the discussion of that, we'll actually get to the second point I wanted to bring up. Um, so the European Conservative, uh, an important voice for conservative thought and ideas writing in Europe. A lot of Americans publish in it as well. You've published an article just in the last couple of weeks. Uh, talk about this idea that uh, borders are terribly, terribly important, except if it's an American border. What's, what's the point of your article? Uh, well, you just said what it is, and it always makes me angry when I think about it. Um, what was the real slap in the face was when uh, Kamala Harris and also the deputy secretary, uh, excuse me, the deputy national security advisor back in January, February said that uh, Ukrainian sovereignty was inviolate, that their territorial sovereignty, the U.S. would stand and fight for. It was a fundamental principle of nations. <gasps> I couldn't believe <laughs> Okay, here's let me let me make this clear. I believe in Ukrainian sovereignty. My heart goes out to uh, the Ukrainian warriors right now. You know whether or not U.S. has interest in that, we can talk about that later. But I believe in Ukrainian sovereignty. I'm not down putting down on the Ukrainians. I, but you have to understand my perspective. I've been down to the border for weeks and weeks all along. Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. I have watched um, the uh, harm that our open border policies have done to immigrants, to illegal immigrants who have to collaborate with Mexican cartels in order to come to this country illegally. They collaborate with brutal criminal enterprises, putting their lives at risk. It's a disgusting situation. We can talk about that more. I have seen the harm that it's doing to American communities. Uh, fentanyl has crossed our border two and a half times the amount it did a year ago. 
Uh, some studies say much more than that, and, and that's all that we know of. I try to repeat this on every podcast I do. Uh, fentanyl, and you know this better than I do, is the number one killer of Americans age 18 to 45. Yes. So if an 18 to 45-year-old is dead, the odds are high. It's fentanyl. And there's a bunch of different ways that can happen. It's not necessarily every single person is a fentanyl addict. Sometimes they take a pill that they, is a counterfeit pill. There's lots of different ways it happens. But the fact remains, fentanyl is the number one killer of Americans 18 to 45. And in my opinion, the Biden administration is bending over backwards to actively cooperate with the cartels to bring it into the country. That's my my perspective. I but, think you're absolutely right. And it only takes a few grains of fentanyl to kill somebody. It's a very small amount. They're putting it in drugs where people don't know it's in there. So when you say overdose, it may not have been on purpose. Um, but it, this is uh, a, a travesty to our country. So you see then why I would be angry about the United States standing up for the sovereignty of a country that, quite frankly, again, let's stand up for their sovereignty. I believe in it. But this is um, in contrast to them standing up for the sovereignty of the United States at our U.S. southern border. I have seen the lack of law down there, not because of our border patrol. Our border patrol wants to do their job. Um, and they have been increasingly demoralized because our administration won't let them do that. And um, anyway, you got me upset again. I kind of forget what you asked. Me. Well, the, the other the other part of that border issue is the European Union and how they treat Hungary yes. over there's this agreement. And uh, it's called Schengen. It makes reference to a, a, a city in Holland where the agreement was signed and Schengen border uh, agreement says, hey, once you get into the EU, you know, it's basically a free pass. And so if you jump back to 2015, 2016, with the, uh, I'm using air quotes when I say Syrian, because it wasn't really just Syrians, but the Syrian refugee crisis flooding north into Europe, everyone will remember that uh, Angela Merkel, the uh, German prime minister, famously kicked the door open and said, come on in. But the problem was you had to transit Hungary to get to Germany. And the Hungarians didn't think that was very funny. And they realized that, hey, look, we have a border. We have the right to have a sovereign nation. Uh, and they got hammered. They got attacked viciously for trying to you know, respect their border, their sovereignty, their rights, their country. And sanctioned. And sanctioned for it. And so uh, everyone's supposed to get excited about Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. Oh, their, their sovereignty and their borders. But America, no big deal. You can have the country chemically bombarded by the Chinese through criminal cartels. And Hungary, you better sit down and shut up because you can't, you can't defend your border. But we need to go to war or on the brink, on the edge of war to defend Ukrainian sovereignty. And here's what's interesting about that, Chris, going back to my article, I, I think, you know, in the article, I point out what I've just said, I, I stand for uh, Ukrainian sovereignty. Um, however, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on here, uh, European and American ruling elites and their so called uh, desire for a territorial sovereignty, and it's not right. And here's who it's hurting. And let's talk about it. So What's interesting about that is I first tried to get this op-ed published, uh, again, based on my remarks from CPAC, with American uh, uh, media outlets. You know, I mentioned I've been in a lot of different ones, and I actually got the feedback, they wouldn't publish it, that it was too provocative, that it made some people reading it angry because... Um, we could not compare, you know, the attack on Ukraine with the attack on the U.S. border. The op-ed was not doing that. But again, it goes back to that thing that even, you know, even our side, even Republicans are so afraid to talk about things that really are the fundamental issues, the wisdom of what the heck is going on and why are our ruling parties allowed to do the outrageous things taking away people's freedom and national sovereignty without any kind of check. Well, let's be clear just for a second. And that is that there's a ton of people, particularly in Washington, D.C., who are war hawks. 
they never saw a war they didn't love, right? They, they, they view it a bunch of different ways, whether it's dollars and cents or sort of an expanded colonialism, or there's all sorts of rationales and reasons for it. But there's a ton of people who are just, you know, hooray for war. They don't care what it is, sign them up. Uh, and so they, they are more than, more than willing uh, to commit to commit blood and treasure uh, to any conflict around the world, uh, particularly ones where they think that they can make a buck out of it. So that's that's one part of the rationale of the, the war hawks. But I think the important thing at this point is to to pause and consider uh, what are the, what's the dollars and cents involved in this? What, what what is the cost to the American taxpayer? Talk about that a little bit. Well. To that point, um, you're talking about the Hawks in Washington. We've appropriated $54 billion to Ukraine since January. And this is bipartisan support. This isn't, you know, just one side. This amounts to about $130 million a day in military aid to Ukraine, plus other types of aid mixed in there. And I, I saw a graph um, by uh, Statista, I believe it is, which I have reason to believe is, is credible. <clears throat> and it shows that the US is supplying military aid 23% higher than anybody else. And, and the second one is, is the UK. So <clears throat> you gotta put this in perspective. It's kind of crazy and I don't understand why we're sort of losing our our uh, foundation over this? Um, I, I want to add some perspective and context. Excuse me for interrupting, sure. but this is so fifty four billion dollars to Ukraine. So let's let's remind ourselves that Trump wanted to build a border wall, yes. and the total cost for that was five billion, one tenth of what we're sending to Ukraine, because somehow Ukraine's border matters more than ours does. Exactly. So that, that's one thing to think about. Um, you know, th there's other ways to look at this and, and, and think about it. But, you know, at the, at the kickoff of this conflict, as, you, as Russia was threatening, and actually as Russia first in, invaded Ukraine, do you recall what the response was from the, from the German government when it came to defending Ukraine? Yeah, they were going to send helmets to Ukraine. Right. I mean, In fact, they didn't even send them. The, <laughs> the initial response from the German government was an offer of 5,000 helmets for Ukraine. So we have to, it's really important, I think, to pause and, and think about the propagandizing of wars like this and kind of the drumbeat of who gets on board who pushes it, who's most anxious to fund it and to turn it into a sensation. Very famously, back in 1917 with the First World War, a, uh, a U.S. senator named Hiram Johnson said that the, the first casualty of war is the truth. And so you see news reporting where there's this sort of frantic cheerleading about how Ukrainians are great, Ukrainians are winning, and then two days later, you'll see, oh, the Ukrainians had an exciting opportunity to withdraw 25 miles and abandon all their equipment, but it really wasn't a loss. I mean, there's just, there's incredibly dishonest reporting about what's going on. Yes. I mean, there's been a lot of dishonesty from the beginning. I mean, the Germans only offered to send helmets because they're totally reliant on Russian energy. Um, Nord Stream 2 was back into production because Biden had lifted the uh, sanctions that Trump had put against it. And, you know, Nord Stream 2 coming right there in Germany. Um, there were a lot of reasons we didn't have leverage because uh, over the situation, because the EU needed needs Russia. So now they're talking about, um, you know, becoming less reliant on Russian energy. Okay, good for them. Can they do it in the year they want to do? No, I'm quite positive they cannot do that. I think it's more blustering and propaganda type stuff to make everybody kind of calm down and stop putting pointing fingers at them. But this should show the United States. We don't need to be dependent 
on a co- another country, especially one that's an adversary uh, for our energy resources. And now there was a time when we were energy independent, and it wasn't that long ago. Um, and, and Chris, can I also say this? Because I don't think a lot of people know this about the $54 billion and the military equipment we're sending over to Ukraine. Do you know that Congress has not put in, in place any kind of new oversight uh, mechanisms? Um, Ukraine has not agreed to even allow oversight personnel into the country. So we don't know what they're doing with the equipment. We don't know what they're doing with the money. Now, why would you send $54 billion anywhere without having some kind of accountability in place? All right, we saw what happened in Afghanistan. Exactly. And so this is, I mean, I, I'd say a third of it is going to be lost to fraud and waste and abuse, just, well, just off the cuff. And that, you know, do I have a study to prove that? No, I don't. I don't have some journal article that, you know, well, you I'm just telling to. you, I, I have guts and instincts and I know I've been deployed as an army officer overseas for a lot of years. A third off the top vanishes into people's pockets. Just my opinion. And we saw that in Afghanistan. We saw a lot of fraud years later. It takes years sometimes to know this uh, fraud. But you know what? Also, the funding, U.S. funding, we found out actually went to help the Taliban. Yeah. I mean, this, this is to brace up. You get, Ten years from now, you're going to see a report, uh, you know, U.S., aid to Ukraine, you know, X number of billion dollars lost to oligarchs and crooked thugs and all kinds of other nonsense. I, I'm, I am predicting the headline now. You can count on it. I think another thing uh, uh, that everyone should look at and, and concern themselves with is that surprise, surprise, as there's demands to get away from Russian oil, uh, we're actually increasing the value. We're throwing money at Russia because uh, these sanctions are a joke, they're not working, and there's all sorts of backdoor ways to pay them. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, the Ukrainian National Energy Company is actively cooperating with the Russians to ship oil and gas to Europe. So we, we shouldn't be confused by that. But today's Wall Street Journal, I guess or maybe it was yesterday's, an article, without cheap Russian energy, some European factories must close. Oh, no kidding. So... I mean, I, it, it is as though the Biden administration is talking out of both sides of their mouth on all these issues, and uh, they'll, they're simultaneously trying to pin forty-year uh, high runaway inflation on Putin, which is preposterous. Um, when you when you're looking at industry and energy industry, we're talking about infrastructure built. We're talking about personnel. We're talking about certain uh, mechanisms put in place for certain types of of, uh, oil and gas being sent to a country. This cannot be unraveled in one year if you are dependent on this one country, on Russia, for so much of your oil. These things cannot be be unraveled so quickly. And, you know, in Hungary, for example, kudos to Prime Prime Minister Orban, who stood up and said, hey, you're going to crush my economy if you do that. I I can't I can't do that. I think Hungary obtained something like 68 percent of their energy resources, whether it's oil or national and their landlocked natural gas uh, from Russia. And so you you just can't flip a coin or turn a spigot and, and change that. And yeah, I mean, thanks to the Treaty of Trianon in 1920, Hungary is one third the size of what it used to be, and it's now landlocked, right? So 100 years later, um, they're in a position where they're dependent, uh, and and you don't see any solutions. It's not like the Biden administration is running up saying, look, no sweat, we're going to make sure that you get the, uh, the oil and natural gas that you need uh, from another source. They're really more interested in issuing mandates and just uh, you know demanding compliance uh, and putting a NATO ally, an EU member, in a really awkward position. It doesn't make a lot of sense. No, it doesn't. Um, and what you just made me think of is is the fact that also the Biden administration is continuing to push a very liberal or progressive social agenda into Hungary. Okay. What do I mean by that? It's some, it's a type of imperialism, which you mentioned before. Um, They're mad 
at Hungary. The EU is mad at Hungary because the EU wanted to put into curriculum throughout the EU school school age curriculum um, discussions about sexual orientation and about gender identity. And much like we saw down in Florida with Governor DeSantis saying, no, children, uh, parents get to decide what their children hear about this, not teachers. Um, the Hungarian said, no, we don't want that. In fact, during uh, the election this past April, they put a, a referendum where Hungarian citizens could vote on whether or not they wanted this kind of thing going into their country. And they said no. And we're talking really about little ones, right? This is These are, you know, from kindergarten through elementary school. Uh, you have to come up with a rationale about, you know, why an eight-year-old needs to have a gender identity, uh, you know, total social agenda garbage pumped into their heads at eight years old. Uh, instead of, you know, figuring out how to do basic math functions, they're going to sit around and examine their sexuality. This is craziness. Yeah, it's that's not the EU's business. It's not the US government's business. It's parents that can decide either way. Um, and if you think about it, you know, it even protects parents who do want to teach their children sexual orientation and gender identity because it doesn't allow for parents or, excuse me, teachers in the school to sway their kids either way. So it protects everyone. But anyway, this is another reason that the EU and the current administration cannot stand uh, Hungary. And we just found out, what, a couple of weeks ago, a week ago, I'm not even sure, that the, the ambassador to Hungary from the United States that has been nominated by the Biden administration <laughs> is um, someone who, in his own words, helped lead Obama, the Obama administration in um, promoting LGBT rights all over the world. So I think that most likely this ambassador is being put there in a way to provoke the Hungarian government. Yet again, um, it's not a good idea for diplomacy. It's kind of stupid, uh, especially since this is an ally of ours. And um, it's nothing new, though, Chris. I, I was during the Obama administration, the Trump administration, I was trying to unravel what the Obama administration did in this regard. They spent billions of dollars promoting this ideology uh, around the United States. And I have the literal uh, curriculum and PowerPoints and programs uh in my office that shows things like uh, giving school children scales where with a picture of a transgender person on it. And those school children can decide um, that day if on the scale they feel more male or do they feel more female? Underneath that is a scale that's, do you feel homosexual or do you feel heterosexual, et cetera, et cetera. It's this kind of stuff. So you, going back to your question about why people should care, you have been funding that kind of stuff into countries uh, all over the world. There were programs Obama put forth uh, being LGBT in Asia, in Europe, in Central Europe, and um, Again, pushing an ideology, not protecting human rights of all people, which we certainly should promote and do. There are, and I, I just want to say this, there I've been all over the Middle East and Africa, as you mentioned in the beginning, there are countries where homosexual people are being persecuted because of their sexuality. They're being thrown off of buildings or beheaded. This is violation of human rights. And this we should squarely stand against going into other countries, um, trampling on their religious freedom and their freedom of belief about ideology of transgender and sexual orientation. No, I think that that is an infringement upon other countries' sovereignty. Yeah, I mean, there's a happy middle ground here where individual liberty is respected and uh, people have choices and options for wish, what they wish to do or not do versus uh, open, aggressive, offensive, militant advocacy, where you're trying to promote something that is not consistent with the culture, history, religion, values, et cetera, 
of a particular country. And for whatever reason, uh, you know, promoting Jeffersonian democracy, you know, liberal representative democratic uh, political goals uh, does not necessarily automatically incorporate uh, a, you know, the entire sexual agenda of a segment of society. The, the two things are different. And uh, somehow there's been an effort to sort of weave them together and say, well, if, you if you're at all promoting the constitutional ideals of the United States, well, that means you have to be uh, pro-LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that's a dishonest association. One does not equal the other. And uh, I think that, you know, when, they, when the Biden administration selects an ambassador and does it in a way, I mean, it's, it's pretty transparent that it's an attempt at a provocation. It's just, it's an effort to kind of stick a thumb in the eye of a country that they don't like. When Biden goes out on a limb and calls the guy who's been elected five times as prime minister, calls him an authoritarian thug and has nothing, has zero to back it up. Uh, you know, I, frankly, Prime Minister Orban exhibits, I think, great restraint because there's probably a few things he could say about Biden. You know, if he's going to if you're going to get into a name calling match, uh, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. But I don't see that. And so, um, you know, let's hear it for restraint. Let's hear it for uh, restraint of, of word and thought and, and pen. Uh, that's a, a good idea. Uh, but it doesn't advance the ball. It doesn't create cooperation. It doesn't co uh, create prosperity. It doesn't create security cooperation. Instead, it generates tension. It generates uh, strife and ill will. And we, we should be going around the world looking for allies, not looking to pick fights. And that's kind of how I view this appointment uh, of this proposed ambassador to Hungary. I don't know why we have to go out and create a crisis. We have enough problems uh, at home. And speaking of problems at home, I want to get uh, your idea, your take uh, from an economic standpoint on uh, on the situation we're in, uh, the domestic impact on 40-year high inflation rates. I mean, what is we're, we're, the president wishes to blame it on Putin? Is that a reasonable uh, call? Is, is it all up because of Mr. Putin? Yeah, of course not. This is more of the crazy let's twist and pervert the narrative until people don't know how to stand up straight anymore um i remember when he said that you know or gas prices at the pump were going to be because of putin and i thought well what about the fact that you stopped leasing of federal land for oil and gas what about the fact um that you increased costly regulations on the industry what about the fact that you closed down our pipeline these didn't have anything to do with uh gas prices um so it's a it's just more of the same narrative of not being able to take responsibility in any way, shape, or form of what's going on in our government. I guess that's it. We're, we're importing baby formula because of Putin, too. I mean, this is the lengths to which uh, the administration has gone grasping, grasping and groping at, uh, at all kinds of crazy theories in an effort to come up with some rationale to explain their failures and their, their shortcomings. Um, so I'd like you to review or recap for us the, the two things, the two panels that you participated in. Uh, the first one at uh, at CPAC Hungary. Give us a snapshot or give us a, a description of your work there at the CPAC Hungary event. And then secondly, give us an idea of, uh, of your work at the Heritage uh, event that was also co-hosted by International Republican Institute, IRI. So first, uh, tee us up with CPAC Hungary. What was going on there? Well, man, what, what a great event it was. And I go back to what I said in the beginning. A lot of it to me was because I could freely disagree or agree with people and not feel like we had to have some sort of uh, cancel culture among, among us. It was, it was a uh, discussion of scholars and uh, conservative leaders and what a you know what just uh, kudos to 
CPAC Hungary, which was not just hosted by ACU, as you know, but also by the Center for Fundamental Rights over there in uh, Hungary, uh, led by Miklos Santo. So let me just say thank you to them. Um, On my panel, uh, also is Jim Carafano from Heritage and a lovely lady from France who writes for the London Telegraph named Anne-Elizabeth Moutet, beautiful lady. Uh, We had great discussion about homeland security, and I talked much about what we've discussed already, um, the hypocrisy of the ruling parties um, and the lack of deterrence that the Biden administration has shown all around the world. We have abandoned the model of deterrence used by so many of our leaders before, you know, most recently, the Trump administration did did Putin even amass troops uh, on the border of Ukraine, much less invade? No, I mean, the, the Putin only attacks Ukraine under Obama, Biden, and now Biden, Harris. That's exactly right. That was something that I pointed out because public diplomacy and, you know, just an understanding that the United States, that deterrence, the United States will attack if provoked. We don't want to. That's the way Trump was. I don't want to, but I will. And they knew he would. Um, I mean, the world saw what we did in Afghanistan. So anyway, we just I mean, that to me is that is the hallmark humiliation event for the Biden administration. That is the American surrender and tail between our legs. uh, Disgrace that can be hung around the neck of Biden, uh, you know, for the next uh, thousand years of history. And when you're looking at the Middle East, we began uh, negotiating again with Iran. We were talking about taking the Revolutionary Guard off the terrorist list. I mean, we've become these weak pansy, and it's it's not even weakness. It's just a lack of common sense to protect your country. Here's, here's the thing. I pointed this out in my article, too. It's naivete to think that we can all love each other and be together. Yeah, this is what we're striving for. We're um, striving for peace, collaboration, togetherness. This is what most of us are working every day for, but it's extremely naive. If you've lived all over the world, grew up uh, on Marine Corps bases and uh, uh, worked all over the world like I have, it's extremely naive to think that every country and every culture wants to embrace you. There are many out there that want to kill us. Um, So this weak showing that we're doing around the world, that is why it's extremely unwise and uh, critical that we turn this around. So that was the CPAC Hungary talk. Uh, You then went on to another event also in Budapest, Hungary with Heritage and IRI. Give us uh, an idea of uh, what that discussion was about and and where that conversation went. Well, uh, here's where also I found out that there are quite a few conservatives that think that we should have uh, brokered a peace deal. Like I mentioned that I've been believing since before the invasion started that it would not turn out well for Ukraine. I heard a lot of, um, I guess, people agreeing with with what I had been saying here on television and things. And and you hear very, I've heard you say it many times, but very few people in the media or on Capitol Hill are saying, hey, this isn't going to turn out well for Ukraine. Could we have some wisdom here? And also, hey, we believe in Ukrainian sovereignty, but is this really in the best interest of the United, United States? No. Well, other conservatives from other countries there, particularly in Hungary, um, from MCC, for one, one thing, Matthias Corvinus Collegium, was saying, you know, this isn't in our interest. We want to support the Ukrainians. Hungary is doing that. They've taken in over 700,000 Ukrainian refugees. Uh, I went to the Ukrainian refugee center. I saw, I mean, they, they won't say how much money they're giving um, because they say that they're doing it out of humanitarianism, but it's got to be millions and millions of dollars that they're spending on this. Um, so say there was a uh, agreement that 
this war is going to continue to grind on and on and on and will not help the Ukrainians. There were a couple of people, interestingly, I think one of them was Russian, an academic, a scholar there, who thought that the war should be over in a few months. And to do that, the U.S. had to stop step in and um, attack Russia, basically, is what it boiled down to. Um, we also talked about the alliances between China and Russia that are being strengthened because this is one thing I brought up on the panel, Biden's asleep. And so Russia decides to circumvent the sanctions that are on the country and has gone to China and brokered new oil and gas deals, $80 billion deal over the next 10 years. This is one example. Um, but there are alliances all over the world that I talked about that are strengthening. China is going to the Middle East. They, they just did three huge oil deals with Iraq. All of these um, alliances being strengthened that in, in the great power competition for the United States are, is not in our advantage. Um, so I don't think that the Biden administration is watching over this. International organizations is a similar thing. They are being strengthened. Um, they are aligning themselves more with authoritarianism. The World Health Organization, which you mentioned before, as I did an article on this like a year or so ago, the leader, the director general of it, has very clear, very solid ties to the Chinese Communist Party. So I just, um, we, we talked a lot about alliances and uh, how to kind of watch out for what's going on around the world. You know, the good news is that there are some people with their eye on it, even if our administration is not. You know, uh, something that's brought to mind based on that overview you just gave is that, uh, you know, China is the back door for Russia to evade sanctions. China is in a position now to be sort of arm's length from this Ukraine fight and uh, probably would love to step in and broker a peace deal and elevate itself as being sort of the, uh, the adult in the room who's going to calm down the uh, the fighting children and uh, and establish some sort of order and peace um but you know in the context of afghanistan and uh, the bungled effort walking up to the russian invasion of ukraine what's the message for taiwan what are the what do you think the taiwanese people are thinking when they look out and they see china with a blue water navy now where they see a weak America with a, a doddering president who barely knows what day of the week it is, where we see, you know, just incredible ineptitude in foreign policy. Uh, do you think the Taiwanese are a little worried? Well, here's what's strange about this. Um, I did hear leaders and uh, scholars say in, in Europe, a, a few times, actually. Oh, China won't invade Taiwan. They're not going to invade Taiwan. They're not interested in that. They could have done that already if they wanted to. And I thought, well, I, I hope that is true. Um, but you're asking me what I think Taiwan thinks. <laughs> I think they're looking at the expansion of Chinese military presence and the fact that the U.S., come on, we're not going to do anything. We didn't do anything already. Um, they're worried to answer your question, the Chinese have expanded military presence, not just there in, in um, I've lost the word, South China Sea, Red China, South China Sea, but they're also expanding military presence around in the Atlantic area. A lot of strategic growing of their military and putting their military bases in different spots has been going on, but you barely see it being reported by the mainstream media. So, you know, I hope these friends of mine that I spoke to um, were, you know, are right, but I think Taiwan's pretty worried. And yeah, I think the Taiwanese, uh, they've, they've got to be concerned. They, there's been a, a long effort to undermine and to infiltrate and to, in a really insidious way, destabilize the Taiwanese government and military. Uh, I don't know if the if an invasion occurs, you know, next month, next year, or ten years from now, but uh, the Biden administration's efforts around the world have been 
destabilizing and and not building confidence, but really uh, tearing down international confidence. You, you just saw this last week. The Biden administration tried to have a conference of of other countries in what we used to think of as our hemisphere back when there was something called the Monroe Doctrine, which no one even knows about anymore. The idea was the U.S. was the big dog in the Western Hemisphere. And so nothing in Central or South America happened without the U.S. involvement. Biden invites all the Central and South American countries to a summit and Mexico and the Northern Triangle boycott. They don't even show up, which is a wonderful way of saying drop dead uh, to the United States and to the Biden administration. So these are the challenges we're faced with. And you know, I hate to paint a picture of doom and gloom. We have enough troubles at home, whether it's you know, the insanity of cultural Marxism and CRT, uh, trying to attack our cultural, our historical foundations as a country, whether it's 40-year high inflation, uh, you know, the, the January 6th kangaroo court commission trying to go after people uh, that supported President Trump in any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, the, why, I, I'm anticipating that, you know, the next hysteria over the, as the fall approaches, there'll be some ramped up effort to make everyone hysterical over COVID. Um, it's just, there's a laundry list of, of, of horrors that face the country. Uh, but you're doing your important work and you've, I think, really enlightened our listening audience to international foreign affairs related issues and what uh, our friends and, and some of our <laughs> some of our enemies, frankly, are thinking about the United States. But I want to give you the last word as we as we roll towards the end of, uh, of this episode. And I'd like you to talk about uh, you, your work and, of course, your organization counterpoint institute uh maybe take a few minutes and, and let our listening audience know about uh, about what you're up to well i'm glad you mentioned chris that you know we don't want to scare everybody or i don't know what you said exactly i i am a very positive person and i like to give people you know steps they can take what the positive hope is so if i thought we were all going to hell in a handbasket for sure I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing because, as you know, this job is too darn hard. There's too much opposition. Um, it's it, at times it can be no fun. <laughs> so that's not what I think, or I wouldn't have Counterpoint Institute. Um, I I guess I'm giving the the worst situation right now because that's what we do at Counterpoint Institute. In a way, our motto is that we uncover, we expose the truth about what's going on in national security and foreign policy, because there's so much Americans are not being told and they need to know. They need to know so that they can act accordingly and stand up for, for their ideas, for their money going overseas um, or the policies that they see fit. So that's what we do. We promote conservative value, values on Capitol Hill, into legislation, um, into uh, the administration, wherever we can get a door open. Um, that's why we write op-eds, do television, try to spread the word about what's going on and what we can do about it. Um, this is a, a passion that I have. There are very few, uh, relatively speaking, conservative organizations in this uh, in this uh, country. Um, we have a proliferation of open society foundations as funded by George Soros, and um, they are heavily, heavily funded. We need more good, effective, conservative organizations standing up for, I believe, the majority of Americans in the United States. So if you want to, if your listeners would like to know more about what we do, go to counterpointinstitute.org. Um, you can go under the, the news and media tab, look at our newsletters, our recent newsletters. You can also sign up for a newsletter. We really need your donations. 
Um, this is not free. And as you pointed out in the beginning, we don't just sit here and think great thoughts. We go down to the border and talk to the law enforcement down there. We go on um, the Rio Grande and see the people crossing over into our country. We go all over the world and uh, spread conservative news, make partnerships and alliances. This is part of the strategy that we have. Um, we, we are very passionate, as I said, and, and love this job. We certainly could use, uh, your support in whatever way people would like to give it, even social media, follow us on social media. And what's, uh, what's I think important is what you just mentioned with regard to getting out on the ground and doing the investigative and research work. And so you did a five part series for daily signal on the state of the, the U S Mexico border. And that appeared in Daily Signal. It's posted up on your website, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is. And and it's not your normal series. You're going to learn stuff about the border situation you didn't know, such as what I mentioned before. The Mexican cartels business is booming. And I explain how because I heard it firsthand down there from people who live down there, who patrol the border, etc. Um, you're going to find out, too, how it's very harmful for the illegal immigrants. And this narrative Biden has of humane, orderly and safe is a bunch of BS. Glad to clean that up. <laughs> the uh, and then the other thing you did was uh, you went into a Ukrainian uh, refugee center in Budapest, Hungary. Again, not talking about it from a, a studio in Washington or New York, but you actually were in the refugee center, saw the facilities, interviewed the staff, and those sorts of things as well. Yeah, and you know what? I could come back and report to people because if you look in the mainstream media about Hungary, it's the EU lambasting Hungary because they don't want hundreds of thousands of people coming through the country needlessly after the Arab Spring, where they don't know who these people are. But the Ukrainian refugees who are fleeing war, they'll take them in. So this narrative the EU has about Hungary being not a humanitarian, it, it, that's a bunch of bull. So that's why we go to the source we go to the places, we find out what's really going on, we bring it back to Capitol Hill, and we say, this is what you need in the legislation. And you're educating the American public. So, uh, you know, a big part of what we do. whether it's a guy driving a truck, or whether it's uh, a mom getting kids from school, or uh, a young person trying to figure out what they want to do or where they want to go with their life, right. you're educating the American public about what's going on. And so, uh, I'll just remind everybody, uh, Dr. Shea's website is counterpointinstitute.org, counterpointinstitute.org. We'll put a link in our uh, show uh, headliner description information so folks can find that. I want to thank you very much for taking time to come in and talk with us today. Uh, I think we covered a lot of really interesting ground, a lot of important topics, and I think you've done a lot to... Uh, really bringing the American public up to speed on what is going on uh, overseas, but that impacts them at home today, right now. And that's the key. It impacts Americans. All the work we do that's connected with national security and foreign policy is affecting every American. Dr. Shea Bradley Farrell, president of Counterpoint Institute. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Chris, for the, your time. I'm Chris Farrell on watch thanks for listening to chris farrell's on watch podcast for more information visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law